Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we talk to the brightest minds to talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine, and today we will be speaking to the BBC's Andrew Marr about what will soon be the biggest question facing the nation. Will it continue to exist? As former First Minister Alex Salmond attempts to bring down his successor and former protégé, Nicola Sturgeon, it's the blood feud within Scottish nationalism that is making all the headlines. But Andrew takes us well behind them to form a strategic long view of the frailty of the Union in the cover story for the brand new April issue of Prospect. Deep tides, he thinks, are washing away at the very idea of Britain, while a newly confident Scotland and a newly English sense of grievance are also potentially nudging history in the direction of a divorce, which, Andrew explains, if it happens, could have some very perverse consequences for just about all the people who brought it about. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome, Tom. Good to be here. And it's a, it's a magisterial essay in which you've been at pains to get behind all that latest frenzy about Salmond and Sturgeon. But my goodness, there's, there's been so much of it about that that hasn't been easy. And since we went to press, there's been a poll or two suggesting a teeny bit of a swing back away from independence. But your argument, if I've got you right, is that we might do better to focus on this less as the extraordinary souring of a 20-year political alliance between two formidable individuals and think of it more in terms of a 300-year-old relationship between two nations. I think that's absolutely right, Tom. You have to look at the the emotional as well as the economic um, reasons for identity and nation. And that's something, if we learned anything from Brexit, that's one of the things we should have learned from Brexit, is that never underestimate the emotional power of identity and history. And my argument is that uh, for most of the time since the Union, which in many ways was forced upon Scotland after the Darien disaster, Scotland was more or less bankrupt at the time, uh, and England used her much greater economic power to oblige Scotland to join the Parliamentary Union. Ever since then, for most of the time, Scotland and England have run along very, very similar tracks. Scotland had a different you know, education system, legal system, and so forth, and certainly a different church. But during the high day of the Industrial Revolution, Scotland, you know, Glasgow as much as Manchester, was at the forefront of industrial and economic change. 
and then we have the great long period of the empire. And those Scots who like to portray Scotland as a kind of put-upon sort of semi-province of the greater England, always under England's thumb, forget that for most of the period of the empire, so many of the generals, the regiments, the administrators, the accountants, the business people, and frankly the exploiters of empire came from Scotland. Scotland did very, very well out of the empire. And you only have to wander around uh, the centre of Edinburgh or Glasgow and look at those great huge chiselled sandstone buildings with the marble frontages and so on to realise that just as much as Bristol um, or Liverpool or indeed the east end of London, um, modern Scotland was built on the empire. So we have this very long period of industrial revolution and empire when Scotland is a very close player. And I think it's only in the 20th century that things start to go awry. Scotland uh, suffers very, very severe industrialisation during the latter part of the 20th century. The empire is now something to be uh, apologised for for many people rather than celebrated. And the great period in the 20th century where Scotland and England stood side by side, the Second World War, is fading from living memory. And so I think one of the big problems for Britishness is the lack of a big emotional um, kick, something in the stomach that makes people feel proud to be British. Um, people will talk about the NHS and they talk about the sort of spitfire summer of 1940. But what is it about modern Britain that makes people in, in Fife, in Aberdeen, in the Scottish borders feel emotionally and patriotically British rather than Scottish? And that is the really big question. And I think... Um, the, under, the undertold part of this story is Englishness, because if you look at... There's been a lot of recent polling by academics on underlying political identity, and Englishness is rising and rising and rising as, as an emotional thing. I think an awful lot of people south of the border who a generation ago would automatically just say, I'm British, now use English instead. And you look at the flags, and you look at the way that people um, identify, and indeed, frankly, the kind of... Uh, grinding friction and hostility caused by Scottish and Irish and Welsh pro-independence movements in England and a sense of England being put upon. That is the other part of the story. South and north of the border, the emotional impact of Britishness is waning. I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting in the, in the football crowds, isn't it? There's a thing we've illustrated the piece with and you see as recently as 1990, so, you know, within my memory uh it was the union jack was the flag of choice for england fans and it certainly isn't now it hasn't been since about 10 years later so that could be a sort of second world war memories dropping out of view thing but as you were alluding to at the end there it could also be something else that changed in that decade of the 90s was devolution now most people in England certainly didn't care about scottish devolution before it happened but you've got a bit of a sense that maybe they've kind of cared about it or kicked against it since it has? Well, if you use the phrase the Barnet formula, then most educated people in Scotland know what you're talking about. And most educated people in England probably don't. The Barnet formula is the complex formula drawn up during the Callaghan government, um, well, revised during the Callaghan government, which basically allocates Scotland more public spending per head than England gets. And this is for very good and practical reasons. Scotland has a much smaller population scattered over a much wider territory. Simply providing the public services, the roads, the doctors and so on, costs more in Scotland than it does in England. Scotland for a long time has had a very high deprivation index, particularly in parts of west urban Scotland. And you put it all together 
and the Scots get more out of the public spending cake per head than do the English. And, of course, because Scotland is um, per capita um, less well off, but, but, I mean, very well off, but not as well off as the south of England in particular, they're paying in less per head in tax. And so that creates a gap. Now, that's always been accepted, and it's occasionally um, slightly eccentric English MPs will grumble about it and make something of it, but by and large, it's been ignored for a long time. But I think having a uh, assertively social democratic Scottish government very, very keen to spend more on public services and to boast about, you know, where it comes to um, social care or where it come, whether it comes to housing or whatever, they are doing better, they're more generous, they're more public-spirited than the English, then that starts to make the Barnett formula a real problem. I mean, it's very interesting that, by and large, it's almost a geographical thing, I think, Tom. You know, you look across the Northern Hemisphere... And the nearer you get to the Arctic, the more social democratic, by and large, the cultures tend to be, whether it's Canada versus the United States or whether it's Norway and Finland and Sweden versus, um, you know, Germany and France. You can see a more social democratic instinct as it gets cold when you get those long winters. And I think in a funny basic way, the same thing is true in, in Britain. By and large, the Scots dress a little more to the left than do the English. <laughs> um... So Labour then comes across as extremely important in your story, doesn't it? As, you know, the, the left-wing part of what we used to think of as the British political um, spectrum. And, of course, it's taken this almighty tumble in uh, recent years with, with, with very grim consequences for the union. And you talk about going back to Scotland not just once, but, you know, repeatedly and seeing different groups of people move towards independence, which used to be something that was favoured by, I don't know, a quarter of people, didn't it, a, a generation or so ago. And the first group, let's do this in groups, the first group you talk about defecting, I think, are quite left-wing, you know, old Labour people, if you like, who don't like new Labour positioning itself pretty much squarely on Middle England. Is that fair? That's absolutely right. I mean, two things happened. When I was a very young political reporter in the early 1980s, I think out of 72 Scottish MPs, more than 50, or 50 or 51 were Labour MPs. Scotland was an absolutely Labour-dominated society, and not just in numbers, but because you had John Smith and Donald Dewar and Robin Cook and so many, and Alistair Darling, so many of the key figures in the Labour movement were from Scotland. So in terms of personality and numbers, Scotland dominated Labour in many ways. Um, and that the collapse of that happened very, very quickly, and it happened very largely because of the dislike of Tony Blair in theory a Scot himself, but didn't sound like one, and the Iraq war in particular. And really that was the achievement also of Alex Salmond. He's in the news at the moment, but he did two very, very important things as the pivotal leader of the SNP. First of all, the SNP had always had a slightly anti-Catholic reputation. Uh, Working-class Catholic voters in the west of Scotland saw the SNP as very much a Protestant party. Alex Salmond completely turned that around. He made friends with Archbishop Winning. He made a real effort to win over working-class, left-of-centre um, Scottish Catholic voters. Now, they had all been in the Labour Party and no-one had been wooing them before, and that's a very important part of the story. The second thing that he did, frankly, as a member of a founder member of the so-called 79 group, which was the left-of-centre, uh, the left-wing group in the SNP, is he took the SNP to the left. So suddenly, um, people who didn't like Blair were worried about the Iraq War, feared that Blair was just following on from Thatcherism in some ways, had a real alternative. They had a local, 
insurgent, left-of-centre, non-sectarian party to go to, the SNP. And I don't think that the great figures of the Labour Party at that period, you know, Donald Dewar included, or, or John Smith, really understood what was going on. I think they were complacent, they had been so dominant for so long, they had a near contempt for the what they called the Nats. They thought a bunch of sort of eccentrics wearing kilts are not really to be worried about how wrong they were. Mm, mm. And so that's wave one. And then the second wave you talk about is summer 2016. We've had the Brexit vote. And people who might not have been Labour before and certainly weren't nationalists before start to go a bit wobbly. Well, I've got to be a little bit careful about um, revealing my sources, as it were. But I go up to Scotland several times a year for a, a, a serious period. And I always talk to friends who I've known for a long time. Many of them were against independence during the first referendum. And quite a lot were associated with the Labour Party or a general kind of slightly green, slightly left of centre viewpoint. And really, they were brought to the the pro-nationalist movement by Brexit. And again and again and again, I heard people say, well, I don't don't like the Nats, I don't like this, I don't like the xenophobia and I hate it and I don't like this and I don't like that, but I just can't tolerate, I can't thole Brexit, to use a Scots word, um... I, you know, the fact that this is being imposed upon us. We are European. Scotland's always had a strong relationship with Germany and with France. We feel ourselves Europeans in our boots, in a way, often more than we are British. And that is being taken away from us without our say-so. And I think that's a massive, massive change. I think Brexit, and frankly, the fact that, without being too ad hominem about it, Boris Johnson is disliked, particularly in Scotland, has brought a new wave of support towards the independence movement, if not necessarily, Tom, towards the SNP itself. Mm. And so you talk about, as well, another card that the SNP played very well, and this might bring us back to today's politics a little bit, is that they played this card of respectability, something you say matters more in Scotland than other places you know. Well, I think respectability and, and sort of law-abiding is very important. And I think, and I've talked about the brilliance of Alex Salmond when he was a leader of the SNP and he was an extraordinary figure and we've seen his power very recently again. But Nicola Sturgeon managed to create a kind of safe-feeling, um, business-as-usual social democracy in the Scottish government. If you were a kind of not particularly party political, middle of the road kind of Scot who valued the welfare state and the NHS and wanted people to be fair, a little bit of Christian values and decency and fairness, the SNP government for a long time, that's how it seemed, you know, lots of rather sober, serious guys in suits, Nicola Sturgeon, slightly headmistressy with them, but keeping them very much in line, always seeming... Um, much more open, uh, uh, responsible, uh, ready to answer questions, and from time to time uh, keener to apologise for mistakes, perhaps, than the slightly more frenetic, tribalised politics, as it seemed at the time, in Westminster. And I think she just made a generation of Scots feel comfortable with the idea of the SNP. And if you're comfortable with the SNP, then you're much likelier to be comfortable with the idea of independence too, obviously. We'd like to recommend another podcast which we think you'll enjoy. With Reason from New Humanist magazine brings you intelligent thinking for our turbulent times. Just like this podcast, it's an interview-based show featuring conversations with top thinkers talking in-depth 
about their fascinating and sometimes challenging work and ideas. Season two is out now with speakers like Catherine Angel on consent and desire and Michael Rosen on COVID and the ethics of care. It's a podcast that makes you feel sharper just by listening and we think you'll like it as much as we do. So look up with reason wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Certainly that respectability probably only grew with the pandemic. She seemed like she was more initially and instinctively at ease with requiring the restrictions for the common good than Boris Johnson was, for example, in the first instance. But this round now, um, you think will take some sort of, do some sort of damage to that, won't it? I think it must do some sort of damage. It's not so important that Alex Salmond is furious with Nicola Sturgeon. That doesn't matter really at all. What matters is his underlying charge that the Scottish state under the SNP has u- had been used in a mildly oppressive way against him, that um, in, you know, journalists have been um, gagged, in his view, the, the pros- prosecutorial system hasn't been as independent as it should be, Parliament has not been as assertive as a proper, independent, proud Parliament should be, etc., Now, this sense that the SNP has become a bit of a ruling cabal rather than an open sort of um, democratic and inclusive organisation, that must damage the SNP. And if Scots start to think that, start to think they've just been in power too long. And they have been in power a long time in Scotland and they've been in power without a very impressive opposition for most of that time. Uh, Ruth Davidson, the former leader of the Scottish Tories, is the most formidable non-SNP politician in the country, but she is in semi-retirement. You know, she's going to the House of Lords soon. Nicola Sturgeon teased her quite effectively about that in the Scottish Parliament recently. So they haven't really had the pressure on them of thinking they may lose elections if they get this or that wrong. They haven't had a really assertive, um, you know, inquisitive, impertinent Parliament to deal with. It's been a bit too comfortable for them. And if that has made them complacent, then they only have to look at the history of the Scottish Labour Party to remind themselves how incredibly dangerous complacency is in politics. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, to think this this May, when they we now know they will be holding the elections, don't we, and, and, and going, going ahead with it, they will have been in power initially with that razor-thin majority of, of plurality of one seat more than Labour, I think, in 2007, but for 14 years. So that's more than new Labour was in power, and they don't seem as exhausted as that, even though they might be starting to fray a bit. No, I mean, and the, you know, there are really serious policy problems they have got. Um, you know, the re- their record on education is not stellar. Their record on uh, street use of drugs and deaths from drugs is appalling, um, and so on. But for most of the time, for most people in Scotland, life has carried on quite effectively uh, as usual, and that has been their great achievement. I think going forward, there are really interesting questions about what the extent to which Salmond versus Sturgeon is going to become an ideological split inside the SNP. Um, and you could say that, for instance, when it comes to um, identity politics and trans rights and all the rest of it, the Sturgeon camp are more quotes progressive or metropolitan than the Salmond camp. Uh, Joanna Cherry, uh, a Salmond supporter, is a pivotal figure there. You could say, look, certainly looking back historically, that Salmond has been more naturally pro-business than Sturgeon. But, so we haven't yet seen... He's also, by the way, 
um, bolder when it comes to wanting referendums to push ahead. There is a sense among some people in the SNP that Nicola Sturgeon is actually a bit too cautious about this coming referendum. So there are very interesting little... But they're fissures, they're not gaps, they're not crevices yet. But if this goes wrong, this um, Sturgeon-Salmond fight, if it goes badly wrong for Sturgeon, there will then be one heck of a fight inside the SNP, not just about the next leader and who that's going to be, but about the direction of the party, which is not what they need just ahead of a referendum. So if we just... We'll come back to the referendum in a second, but on just the, the May elections, so important, you know, if they get this majority resisting that referendum is going to be harder for London. Um, we've talked about the condition of the SNP and obvious challenges there. What about the, the, the other parties? We've just seen Anna Sawa um, beat the, it was the MSP's choice, beat the, the left-winger Monica Lennon um, in Labour and Douglas Ross maybe running a quieter operation on the Conservative side than uh, than, than Ruth Davidson you were, you were mentioning. Do you see either of those other two parties in a condition to um, really exploit those weaknesses in the SNP or those fissures you've been talking about as possible? I think, I mean, predictions are very dangerous. At the moment, I think that they will be disappointed in, in their performance in these elections coming up because one thing the SNP has done is made independence pro, you're pro-Scottish or you're not. You know, you're one side or the other, you're a, you're a gnat or you're a yoon. And that is the division. And union is not a polite thing to be in Scottish politics at the moment. But that means that, the, you know, the unionist voice is split between three different parties, really, because the Liberal Democrats remain quite important in Scotland, too. So you've got the Lib Dems, Labour and the Tories um, versus a, a, a so far solidified and united SNP bloc with the Greens there as well. And so it's much harder. The first question, if you're a unionist, which kind of unionist are you? Who are you going to go for? And that question isn't really resolved. It did seem that the Scottish Tories were beginning to pull up against Scottish Labour and outflank them in some regards. But I think that's a limited trajectory for them. So I'm not at all sure. I think, so I think the, the unionist parties all have problems. The biggest problems, of course, are in London. How does London respond to this? Um, and that's something I talk about in the essay. But it does seem to me that... Even if you put to one side the, you know, the hilarious um, fact of the Prime Minister's union unit losing two of its leaders in a couple of weeks and then having to be semi-disbanded in favour of a cabinet committee. If you look at the early moves by London to, to quell the SNP by literally having cabinet meetings of UK ministers in Edinburgh as if that's going to solve things. If you look at the arguments about federalism, uh, the idea that by giving more powers to Teesside um, or to Cardiff or to um, any other part of England, to Cornwall, you're going to in some way make people in Scotland feel happier seems to me to be frankly bonkers. Because they've already done the sort of Devo Max, really, in a way, haven't they? they? The Scottish Parliament can control an awful lot. So, I mean, like the final chunk of your essay, I think, is called something like um, No Answers and this idea that, like, if, and it is still a big if, but if there is a crushing SNP win, despite all these arguments uh, in, in the spring, um, it, 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 like Boris Johnson's left at the moment just trying to say no, 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 which I think is what George Osborne has urged him to do. But you do question whether that will be sustainable. I don't think it is sustainable, really. I mean, it, it causes problems for the SNP as well. And by the way, um, given where we are now with the Salmond-Sturgeon feud, it may be that Nicola Sturgeon finds it quite convenient to call for a referendum after these parliamentary elections 
and be told no, that that's quite easy for her because she doesn't actually then have to have it. Um, I mean, she's 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 tied herself to a, a swift referendum after the after the Holyrood elections, and it'll be embarrassing to walk back from that. But if Johnson, she can use Johnson in a sense as her political shield if he keeps saying no. But I think long term, you can't have a situation where most people in Scotland want to leave the UK and London is simply saying, well, you can't. Um, there's a whole process of sort of friction and deterioration. There's a lot of uh, reporting recently about a ban on the flying the Union flag, the Union Jack, so-called, from public buildings in Scotland. Um, and a lot of Scottish buildings now have the saltire and the EU flag, but not the Union flag. Now, that is the kind of, if you like, low-level provocation that we will see more and more and more of. And I think just a, a more cantankerous, difficult, unpleasant relationship developing quite swiftly over time if London just says no. I don't look forward to that. I mean, I don't follow um, the, the situation in Spain very closely, but what you're talking about there does sound like what you pick up about Spain, Catalonia or the Basque Country, where, where these things do just run as kind of long-run grievances and Madrid says, no, you can't. Well, this, this is obviously a danger for, uh, for Nicola Sturgeon um, or whoever is the leader of the SNP at that period because, as I said before, an awful lot of Scottish SNP supporters are very calm, middle-of-the-road, law-abiding folk. And they will not relish the notion of, as it were, street disturbances, strikes, leaders being arrested, and all of that kind of national liberation struggle um, that's going on in, in Catalonia. I'm not sure that the SNP holds together in its current form if that happens. Um, OK, so dangers for them as well. But if uh, in the end the, 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 no, the no isn't sustainable from London, the SNP win and the no isn't sustainable, and we do indeed end up with Scotland going its own way, you also talk, um, in a way I've not seen written anywhere before, about quite how surprised different groups of people who've helped to bring this about might be. Could you say a word about that? So, yes, I think this is the law of perverse consequences. There are two big groups of voters inside the UK at the moment who are driving this big constitutional change. One is obviously SNP supporters, and given where the SNP has grown recently, those are more on the left, working class, left of centre, SNP supporters, who are doing what they're doing because they want a prosperous, big welfare state, social democratic country, securely locked into uh, the EU, but also, as Nicola Sturgeon has said, maintaining a union of family, a union of friendship, a union of business with England. In other words, it's just the politics that changes. So that's what they want. And then, of course, the other really big group, we were talking about Brexit, are English Brexit voters um, who have, perhaps, as it were, by accident, they've propelled Scotland out of the EU as well. And although it's very dangerous to caricature the Brexit voter, there are lots of different kinds of Brexit voter, certainly a large group of Brexit voters would be characterised as sort of mildly nostalgic, wanting a greater Britain like it used to be, a country that is really powerful on the world stage, taken more seriously, as well as freer, um, and frankly, for some of them, also a country that's a bit whiter. Now, my argument is that both of those groups are going to be badly disappointed. The Scottish group, for the, for the reason that we've talked about earlier on, is that England will not be particularly friendly or particularly helpful if Scotland goes it alone. Um, and I think, particularly if Scotland joins the EU, there will have to be a hard border running through the Scottish and English borders. And that means that 
You know, Scotland's biggest export market by far is England, and that will cause problems a bit like the current Brexit exporting problems, but on a much bigger scale. Um, to join the EU, Scotland is going to have to slash its deficit. It's going to have to get that deficit down quite hard and join the euro, almost certainly. Now, getting the deficit down at a time when the oil price is on the floor and going further and when there is real problems with exporting with our biggest export market means that Scotland is very unlikely, I think, to become much more prosperous, put it that way, I'm putting it very gently, as a result of independence in the short, in the short term. Now, longer term, you could argue that there'll be a kind of sort of banana-shaped um, Celtic uh, e European alliance, Scotland, a United Ireland, possibly even Wales, um, and that will help bolster Scottish prosperity. But I think in the short term, it's going to be quite tough, not for Scottish journalists or Scottish politicians or Scottish lawyers or Scottish civil servants or all of that public, public realm. They will have a fantastic time to be independent. The whole world will be interested in Scotland. Lots of people will beat their uh, ways to, to the, Scottish, the doors of Edinburgh. Uh, there'll be fantastically enjoyable international conferences. Money will come in for those kind of people. But for people in Scotland who depend upon state pensions or welfare um, and the welfare state generally, life will get harder. So that will be the perverse consequence for them. They will not get the, the, the more prosperous, generous, happier, easier country that they're looking for. It'll be quite cantankerous and difficult. And for the other group of voters, the English Brexit voters, of course, losing Scotland means you lose the nuclear submarines, and I don't see them being replaced further south. You lose quite a big chunk of your military heft, as well as your physical territory, um, and you lose a lot of waters. You find yourself surrounded by EU states on all sides. You look north, you've got a, a European Scotland. You go, look west, you've got Ireland. You look east, you've got Germany and the Netherlands. You look south, you've got France. You are completely surrounded by EU states. That is going to be quite uncomfortable, I think, for post-Brexit England, or whatever we call it, our UK, rest of UK. Um, they will find that um, if the... If, I mean, the English economy, like the Scottish economy, does seem to require... Um, certain levels of migration coming in, to, you know, bright, talented, hard-working people. If they're not coming from the European Union, they're going to be coming from uh, in the Indian subcontinent, Africa, possibly the Caribbean, South America, and so on. And so people who voted for a stronger, uh, more potent Britain on the world stage, that they'd also like to be a bit whiter, will get an England that is less white and less powerful on the world stage, and they won't necessarily like... The results of that, I said in the piece that it's more like Jeremy Corbyn's vision of England than, as it were, John Redwood's or Nigel Farage's vision. So I think on both sides will be perverse consequences. Brilliant. Well, look, that's fantastic. A good guide round it. You can read the big essay we've been talking about, the Break Up Britain, we've called it Andrew Marr on the Imperiled State of the Union by picking up the magazine at an open news agent. If you can find one, of course, or if not, you can read it on prospectmagazine.co.uk. So thanks very much to Andrew for joining us and thank you very much for tuning in. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating or a review. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week.
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.